The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, in the second chapter and the nineteenth verse, the nineteenth verse in the second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. This verse should in a sense be taken with the previous verse, the 18th. And now, what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt, to drink the waters of Sire? Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria, to drink the waters of the river? Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore, and see, that it is an evil thing and bitter, that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. Those who meet here regularly on Sundays will realize that we are looking at this chapter for the tenth time. Here you see the prophet Jeremiah, the mouthpiece, the spokesman for God, is addressing his contemporaries, his fellow countrymen. They are threatened with terrible calamity, but still they don't see the cause of their troubles. Here they are sending off to Egypt, sending to Assyria, imagining still that they can deal with their problems, and God has sent Jeremiah to tell them that they can't. That as there is only one explanation of their ills, there is only one cure. Here we see the love of God that doesn't give us up, doesn't forsake us. Though we are slow, though we are recalcitrant, though we are stubborn and hard-hearted. Look how he sent prophet after prophet to these children of Israel to plead with them. To plead with them to repent and to return to him. And as we've seen, God himself uses this extraordinary comparison. He says, wherefore I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. God is reasoning with them. He's arguing with them. And you know that is the preaching. That's what's meant by the preaching of the gospel. I don't stand here to tell stories Sunday after Sunday. I don't stand here just to give out what is sometimes called substuff. I'm here to reason. I'm here to plead. I've got pleadings like a barrister. I've got a case. Here's my brief. I don't stand here to say what I think. I'm just putting before you God's pleadings. The case that God has prepared and is putting to the world as it is at this present time. Well now, we've been working our way through these pleadings, one after another. And here we come again to another one this evening. And as I've just said, this one follows by a very close logical connection. The previous one. There, you remember, we were looking at it last Sunday night. God reproves these people for this running down to Egypt and over to Assyria. It's no good. Why do you do it, he says. And here he gives a further answer. He says, it's quite vain. Nothing will come of it. Why? Well, your own wickedness is going to correct you. Your backslidings themselves are going to reprove you. Now then, why is this? What is the matter with these people? Why will they persist in doing everything except the one thing? that is really necessary. I ask the same question about the world today. We know something of the state of the world, don't we? We can see the confusion. We can see statesmen baffled. We can see authorities bewildered, not knowing what to do. What's the matter? What's gone wrong? We've tried so many things. We've turned almost to everything. But it doesn't seem to work. Our Victorian grandfathers were very confident indeed in the power of education and knowledge, science. Oh, I'm never tired of reminding you of that. If I had my way, I would compel everybody to read the philosophers and the poets and the politicians of the last century, especially from about 1860 onwards. I'd compel people to read them in order that they might see again their optimism and their assurance, how confident they were 
that the things they were beginning to initiate were going to solve the whole problem of the human race and that this 20th century was going to be the golden era that humanity had always longed for and had looked forward to. But we, unfortunately, are living in the middle of this 20th century. And it's no golden era, is it? Never has the world been so full of trouble. Well, now the question is, what's the matter? What's the cause of it all? Well, here, once more, we are given the answer. It's the same answer all along, but given to us in different ways. What's the trouble? Well, the trouble is really just one thing. And that is the failure to realize the real nature of our trouble, the real cause of all our ills. That was the trouble with these children of Israel, right through their story. It's the trouble today. It's been the trouble with mankind from the beginning, ever since that calamitous fall took place. It's always been the trouble. Man doesn't see this. He sees other things so clearly. He cannot see this. He's blind at this point. But as it is the most important point, well, what can we do? But uh, go on listening to God's pleadings. Who, as it were, descends from heaven amongst us in the character of his servant, the prophet, in order to try to help us to see. Did you notice the way it's put here? Know therefore and see now, there's a great big word that the authorities sometimes use. They talk about an anthropomorphism. They mean this, that God speaks as if he were a man. And he does. And he does so because of his great kindness and love and compassion. He wants us to understand. Now, here is an anthropomorphism. We, we, we use this expression, don't we? We can see something very clearly, but there, there's somebody else. Maybe somebody who's dear to us, brother or sister. Maybe child, son or daughter. Maybe parents, doesn't matter who it is, but there's somebody in whom we're very interested and of whom we're very fond. And they want to do something. Now we see quite clearly and we know that it's going to be very bad for them. But they can't see it. And what do we say to them? We say, why can't you see it? What's the matter with you? Why can't you see the thing? It's so plain and obvious. What's the matter with you? Why are you so blind? That's what God's saying here. No, therefore. And see that it is an evil thing. Why can't you see this thing, says God? And you know that's what he's saying everywhere in the Bible. That's the great message of the Bible. God addressing the human race and saying, Why can't you see? Why don't you know? Our Lord was obviously constantly saying it in different forms and manners. The trouble with mankind is this ignorance, this blindness. This inability to see this most central and vital of all truths. And what is it? Well, it's what the Bible calls sin. Sin. It's man's failure to understand the truth about sin that ultimately leads to all his varied troubles. Now here in this verse of ours tonight, one aspect of the truth concerning sin is dealt with. And that's what I have to deal with, therefore. What is it? Well, it is this. It is the appalling, tragic failure of the human race to realize the nature of sin, the character of sin, and especially this, that sin always carries its own punishment in and with itself. That's the thing that is dealt with in this verse of ours. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backslidings shall reprove. That's the message. That's the principle. Sin carries with it always its own punishment, its own reproof. Now, let me put it to you like this. Man's root trouble, I'm suggesting, is that he doesn't seem to realize that. He will not see it. He doesn't know this. He's quite convinced and always succeeds in persuading himself that this isn't going to be true in his case. Oh, sin and temptation come in such attractive forms, don't they? As the serpent went to Eve of old, you see, in the Garden of Eden, and she saw that the fruit was good to look upon. Of course, sin is always attractive, isn't it? Nothing wrong, says sin. Look at it. Look at my beauty. Oh, the attraction, the seductive quality 
And we look and like Eve, we see that it is good to look upon and it's very good to eat, no doubt, and will do marvelous things for us. And so we go and do it. And we never realize that it always carries its own consequences and its own punishment. God had told Adam and Eve that he'd made it quite plain to them, that if they did this, they'd be out, and that they'd reap terrible consequences. God had told them that terrible consequences would follow, but of course they, they didn't listen. Mankind, this has been the blind spot. This is the whole tragedy of life in this world tonight. Men and women don't know this, they don't see this. Now, what's the matter? What's the matter with us? What's the matter with all of us by nature? Because it's true of every one of us. What's the cause of this? Well, I, I'm not surprised that the Bible has as its uh, favorite description of the sinner the word fool. The Bible calls the sinner the man who doesn't live for God. It says he's a fool. That's the last truth about him. He's just a fool. He doesn't know how to think straight. Can't reason, can't see. Just a fool. And what else can you say about man in sin except that he is an unutterable fool? Why? Well, let me put it like this to you this evening. Look what mankind is doing still. The same thing as these people were doing. Yes, but look at it in this way. In spite of the long story and record of history, they're still doing the same thing. Now, history has got a very great record. You can read your history books. You can read the accounts of nations and how they rose and how they fell. And you're told why, what happened to them. Now, all that's there. It's in the books. And yet, in spite of the unbroken and unvaried testimony of history, with regard to the consequences of sin and rebellion against God, individuals and nations and peoples still go on doing the same old things that have already brought those who've gone before us into trouble. Still they do it, not only in spite of history, in spite of biographies. You can read your biographies and you see sometimes how a very promising and brilliant career was entirely ruined by what? Well, some personal failure, some sin that had the man in his grip. Now, biography is full of this kind of thing. It's the great testimony of biographies. Every man has the so-called running sore of his soul. What Egypt was to Napoleon, the running sore of his life. So, there is something in every life that, if given way to, just spoils it and ruins it. Biography is full of this teaching. Not only that, novels. Great interest in novels today. Well, very well. If you want to read them, read them intelligently and draw your conclusions from them. And what do they teach us? Same thing. Unhappiness is finally due to this thing called sin. They're preaching that at us. They claim to be mirrors held up to life. And uh, they, they depict life, therefore, as it is. And we're very keen on this today. Realism. Life as it is. Well, look at it. Look what they're depicting. And you're angry young men and so on. And you're realistic dramatists. Well, you see, that, they say, is life. I agree with them, it is. But let's be clear as to why it is like that. And that's what they don't know. They're blind to that. They're simply interested in their realism. They're not concerned to see the cause which leads to this series of things which is depicted in their realism. But not only do you find it there, take the great tragedies. Look at the tragedies of Shakespeare, the master. What are the tragedies due to? Well, isn't it generally due to sin? What's the explanation of the great tragedy depicted so powerfully in Othello? Isn't it sin? Jealousy? Mischief? These are but manifestations of sin. All great tragedies are due to sin. And the greatest tragedies that are known in literature are all in their way just stating this very thing. Yet in spite of that, mankind goes on repeating these same things. We will not learn. Oh, let me put it like this. Even if we've read none of these things at all and are completely ignorant, what about our own experience? What about the things we've done in the past? What about our own record? 
Isn't it shouting this truth at us? And yet we won't love it. We go back and do the same thing again. What's the matter with men? Well, I say this is his whole trouble in spite of all this evidence. In spite of all that has been said to him in all these different ways, he will persist in going back to the same thing and repeating the same error. Now, all this, according to this statement, is due to the fact that man does not know. That he can't see. He's blinded by the devil, the god of this world. What can't he see? Well, he can't see the very thing that God was teaching this nation. Here in this verse through the prophet Jeremiah. What is it? Let me divide it like this for you. He can't see the real essence of sin. What is the essence of sin? What is it that really makes sin sin? What is it that causes it, if you like? Now, here's a very vital question, obviously. The first thing we have to get hold of is this, that we mustn't think of sin in terms of sins only. That's what we tend to do. That's what even your good moral people do. They think of sin in terms of particular sins. And, of course, because they've never got drunk or committed adultery, they think they're not sinners. And rarely they don't see that they've got anything to confess to God. And so many of them don't see any need for forgiveness. That's why they don't like preaching on the death and the blood of Christ. They don't need for... They've never done any wrong. Why do they say that? Because they don't know anything about the true essence of sin. They confuse sin and sins, particular sins. Now that is a most basic and tragic confusion. Sin is not primarily a matter of action but of attitude. Now, that is the thing that is brought out here. Actions are the result of attitude. As a man thinks, so he is, and so he does. So the primary thing is, how does man think? The nature and the character of his thinking. And this is the thing that leads us to the very essence of sin. What is it? Well, here it is. The real thing that makes sin, sin is that man has not got the fear of God in him. Know and realize, know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and better. That thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God. Yes, but why did he do so? Here it is. And that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord of hosts. That's the ultimate trouble. The thing that makes a man a sinner is not, I say again, that he's guilty of particular actions. He may be guilty of none of them and yet be a foul and a terrible sinner. Why? Well, because the fear of the Lord is not in him. Oh, there are many such people today. These are these good, clever people, you know, who sometimes address you on the television. They no longer believe the Christian doctrines. They believe in the ethic. They think they can live it. And that's their whole trouble. They don't see any need of God. They're like the Pharisee in the parable who just thanks God that he is as he is. What's the matter with them? They've never realized that the essence of sin is that there's no fear of the Lord in them. They've never known what it is to fear God. Well, now then, it is at this point that men, I say, displays his unutterable folly. Why? Well, because, as the Bible is constantly telling us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, what that means is this. The very first step in wisdom is to have the fear of the Lord. You can't be wise without the fear of the Lord. You can't have understanding without fearing the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the very beginning, the foundation. There's nothing without it. You can never have wisdom unless you've got this fear of the Lord. And therefore, you see, this is the whole cause of the trouble today. People are crying out for wisdom. What can we do? Where can we turn? Let's listen to these great philosophers. They're wise men. They study wisdom. Can they help us? But we've tried them. They can't help us. They haven't got it. They prove in their own lives they haven't got it. They can't manage their own lives. They've got no wisdom. And not only that, they just don't understand what's happening in the world. They are the people of all people who've told us so often that if only we were, had trained minds and understanding and could think, 
We solve all our problems. Some of them say that they can solve the problem of the whole world and put an end to war, but they don't seem to be able to solve their own marital problems. They haven't got wisdom. And they haven't got wisdom because they know not the fear of the Lord. The world is crying out for wisdom. Everything is being tried. As I showed you last Sunday night, but it doesn't succeed. We can't find it. Where is wisdom? That's the question. Where is it? Where can it be found? You remember the question was propounded by Job. And you know there's only one answer. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Why? Well, for this good reason. That uh, God uh, is the maker and the creator of life and of the whole world. He hath made us and not we ourselves. You see, we are only visitors here. We haven't made the world. We make so many things today, we think we've made the world, don't we? Ah, we can make an internal combustion engine. We can make an atomic bomb. But you know, my friends, we've not made the world. And we haven't made ourselves. And we ourselves are our own greatest problem. It is God who's made us. And he's made us in a very definite way and manner. On the image of himself, put his laws into us. We are his creatures. And he has so made us that we can only function harmoniously as long as we obey certain laws. Now, this is true even of a machine, isn't it? You've got to put your gear in the right place. You've got to obey certain laws or your car won't run. Nothing will run. If you don't obey the laws, your machine won't work. And you know, man, he's, I don't think I'm saying he's a machine, but he's been made on certain laws. There are certain principles in him. And God has so made him that unless he functions in a given way, everything goes wrong and he suffers. That's what's happening in the world tonight. And it's because man doesn't know that, that he can't get even to the beginning of solving his problems, and everything he tries turns into failure in his hands. Man cannot understand himself until he knows God. You see, man thinks he's just an animal, but he isn't. Oh, he's got this unknown something in him. Dust thou art to dust returnest was not spoken of the soul. Man's much bigger than he thinks today. That's his trouble. He hasn't got a true view of himself. He doesn't know he was made for God and meant for God. And that he can never function truly, except that he is in that right relationship. The fear of the Lord. This doesn't mean a craven, trembling fear. That doesn't what it means. It means this. It means, oh, that man starts by saying, now then the basic proposition is that unless I'm rightly related to God, nothing can be right. So he comes back to the center. And he starts again with God. He realizes that he's in God's hands. My times are in thy hands. We didn't decide when to come into this world. And we don't decide when to go out of it. You don't know when you're going to die, I don't. God knows that. We're in his hands. Well, now, isn't it obvious wisdom just to recognize that? We don't control it, you see. We can't. And yet we don't recognize this. We go on living as if we did. Why not start by realizing that we're very frail, temporary creatures passing through this world and that we're in the hands of this almighty being who made us and who made us for himself? And furthermore, let us realize that we're not only in his hands with regard to the beginning and the end of our life, we're in his hands with regard to the living of our life in this world. The psalmists often work out this point. They picture to us what would happen if God withheld the rain. Or indeed, if God withheld the vital power, the vital force that keeps life going, they'd, they show us that the whole thing would collapse, and so it would. What if God, as it were, suddenly turned on the tap? We're having a lot of rain, aren't we? What if God just let it go on and on and on and withheld the sun and all its processes? What would happen? My friends, you call it providence if you like. It's all right, but you know providence is God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not only thus are we in his hands as regards beginning and end, but living and continuation, but in another way. Why not stop and realize that because we are in his hands and because he is almighty, that it is in his hands to bless us or to withhold his blessings? Oh, God has all blessings in his hand. There is nothing he cannot do. He is the source and the fount. 
He is the giver of every good and every perfect gift. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to enjoy life? Do you want to have fullness? Well, uh, the beginning of wisdom is to go to the one who controls it all. That's what you do, isn't it, when you want something? You say, I'm going to headquarters. I'm going to use some influence to get right to the center. I want to go to the man who has authority. I don't want to see these underlings, these clerks. I want the man who really is in control. Well, you're all right. Well, now apply that to life. Use that same wisdom. Do you really want to have a full life and a blessed life? Well, the beginning of wisdom is go to God. He's made it all. He controls these illimitable resources. And there is nothing that he cannot do. And he has everything to give. What's the matter with the world? What's the matter with men? Well, here it is. That thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and that my fear is not in thee. That's why you're in trouble. You don't realize your dependence upon me. You don't realize that I'm at the back of everything and that without me you really can do nothing. They lack this fear of the Lord which is fundamental to true wisdom. And that leads to the second thing, of course, which is thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God. It's because men doesn't know God and hasn't got this reverential fear and awe the almighty God in whose hands he is and in whose hands his very breath is. It's because of that you see that he forsakes God's ways and God's laws. That's what he's doing today. Breaking the Sabbath, of course. He's not interested in Sabbath. Why not? Because he's not interested in God. He's spitting upon the sanctities. Why? Well, there's nothing sacred to him. You don't believe in the sacred if you don't believe in God. It's God who makes things sacred. He says, I'm an animal, and therefore I behave as one. I don't regard marriage as being sacred. Why should I? If I've got an impulse with regard to another woman, well, I'm entitled to exercise it. That's it. That's how man's arguing, isn't it? He has forsaken the Lord, his God. Why? Well, because he hasn't got the fear of the Lord in him. It's his ignorance about this fundamental matter that leads to failure in practice. You see, man is quite consistent. What he's doing is consistent with godlessness. And that's what we are seeing in the world today, godlessness manifesting itself. But the trouble, you see, is not the manifestations. It's the godlessness that's at the back of it. And that's what the world doesn't see. It doesn't know that it doesn't see that. So I'm not going to keep you with a description tonight of the way in which men has forsaken the Lord. I needn't. We all know all about it. We've all done it. We see the world doing it. We read about it. It's constantly before us. That's it. Godlessness. Departing from the ways of the Lord because we haven't got his fear in our heart. Very well, there is the essence of sin, my friend. So I don't care how respectable you may be. I don't care how much good you do. The question I want to ask you is this. Is the fear of the Lord the dominating principle of your life? Are you constantly living your life as under God and under his all-seeing eye? Are you living to the glory of God and to his praise? That's what you were made for. That is what you were meant to do. That is what the fear of the Lord really means. Stop talking about your actions, either good or bad. That's not the question I'm asking you. My fundamental question to you is this. Is your life a God? dominated life. It was said of somebody that he was a God-intoxicated man. We should all be like that. The thing that should govern our every action, our every thought, is the fear of the Lord. The realization that the great God who made the whole cosmos is still there and that we are responsible to him. It is the absence of that that constitutes the very essence of sin. However moral, however good your life may chance to be. Let me hurry to the second thing. And the second thing, of course, is the nature of sin. That's its essence. I'm coming now to its nature. The nature of sin and of the sinful life. And it's worked out here in a number of terms that are given. Let me hold them before you. The first is that it's evil. Now, therefore, and see that it is an evil thing that you've done. What is sin? What is the sinful life? What's the character of the life that so many people are living today? Uh, well, here it is. It's evil. What's evil? Evil is the opposite of good. Evil is the opposite of right. Evil is the opposite of upright. Evil is the opposite the negation of righteousness. That thing which makes God God. It's the utter antithesis of holiness. Purity. It's wrong. It's corrupt. 
It's unwholesome. It's depraved. It's an evil thing that you've done. And oh, what an evil world this world is tonight. This present evil world, as the Apostle Paul put it. And isn't it evil? Look at the things men are doing. Oh, the evil, the utter absence of goodness and righteousness and uprightness and everything that upbuilds and ennobles. That's its character. But the world doesn't think of it. Oh, it says, isn't it wonderful? Isn't this life, life? Thank God I'm grown up now and I needn't go to Sunday school any longer. I needn't go to that chapel or to that church. I'm a man and I'm a woman. And what are you doing? Look at it, it's evil. Bereft of all good and all that is clean and wholesome. Let me hurry to the second term, wickedness. Thine own wickedness, it's wicked. What's the difference between evil and wickedness? Well, I think it's this. Evil describes the character of the thing in and of itself. It's all wrong. There's nothing right about it. What's wickedness? Well, wickedness is to delight in that sort of thing and to enjoy it. It is to love it. This, says our Lord, is the condemnation that, that light is come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than light, and they're doing it at the present time. They're gloating in it. They're boasting of it. They're proud of it. They're talking about it. It's marvelous, they say. What? Evil. There's no good literature, apparently, unless it's evil. Foulness seems to have become the test and the criterion of art. Wickedness. Delighting in it. Gloating in it. Not only doing it, but rejoicing in it. What else? Oh, well, here's the next term, bitter. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing. What's he mean by this? Oh, this is the element of hatred. Why do men live the life they live? I'll tell you why. It's because they hate God. Bitter. The natural mind, says the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 7, the natural mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And you know, my friends, whether you like it or not, the natural man, the man who's not a Christian, he hates God. And he'd like to tear him from the heavens. That's why he jumps at any statement in his newspaper by any sort of scientist which seems to prove there isn't a God. Man hates. Oh, it's bitter. It's a bitter hatred of God. We wish he were not there. That's why men are living as they're living. And that's why they have no fear of the Lord. They're bitter against him. And then the last word is backsliding. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. Isn't this a wonderful expressive term? Do you know the sinful life is always a slide? A man who's sinning is always a man who's sliding. He doesn't stand upright. He doesn't walk. There's no majesty about him. There's some slowing element in him. He's sliding. Sliding down the broad way to sin and to destruction. And have you noticed it? It's almost expressing itself in people's gait at the present time. The Bible talks about the mincing gait. Ah, it's this sliding. Man in sin is not manly. He's not upright. He doesn't stand. He doesn't walk. He doesn't march. You can't march to sin. No, no, you march to glory. You slide and slink into sin. Backsliding. Yes, and it's not only a sliding. It's always backwards. It's always downwards. There's nothing uplifting and nobling in it. There's nothing elevating in it. It's always down. It's always back. It's never onward. It's never progress. It's never with your face to the dawn and to the light and to the day. It's night. It's darkness. Slinking round corners. Backsliding. Well, there it is. I must leave it at that. I could elaborate all this. That's the nature of sin and of the sinful life. But let me come to my third and my last point, which is this. The inevitable consequences of sin. The inevitable consequences of sin. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. Sin always carries its own punishment with it. Sin always has a sting in its tail. 
Not in its head. Very beautiful in its head. And it shows us its head. And it there appeals to us and it attracts us. Go back again, I say, to Genesis 3. Go to look upon. Of course, you'd never do the thing if it wasn't very attractive. Oh, how beautiful this is. How much better than the thing I've been doing. Children of Israel, they always took up these other gods. Oh, they say, how beautiful, how wonderful. Look at the ceremonial, how great this is. And our simple Ten Commandments. And this God of ours whom we never see. Oh, sin is always attractive, yes, but it's always got a sting in the tail. Invariably. You see, that's what makes the Apostle Paul put it like this. The wages of sin is death. The wages. Sin always pays its wages. You can't sin without getting the wages. Do what you like. It's impossible. It cannot be done. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. It's true because of the nature of sin itself, which I've just been describing to you. It is evil, and therefore it's contrary to man's own nature. It's wicked. It's anti-God. It violates all the rules. Cuts across all the principles on which God has made us. So by its very nature, sin must always carry its own punishment. But you know, there's something else that makes this doubly sure, and this is because of God's attitude towards it all. Because he hates it. And I'll tell you why he hates it. Now, don't misunderstand me. I didn't say he hates us. He doesn't hate you. Oh, God's love is such he doesn't hate the sinner, but he does hate the sin. Why? Well, this is the thing that's come in and has marred his glorious creation. Whether we like it or not, God has laid down a rule about this. Sin will always bear its own punishment. Now, you do what you like. I am asserting in the name of God that sin always bears its own punishment. God has said so. He said so back in the Garden of Eden. He's been saying so ever since. Listen to him. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And there isn't. The whole world is proving that tonight. And every individual who is living a life of sin is proving it. Listen to another. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's always a hard way. Of course, he doesn't believe that when he sets out. He's going to make the fortune for nothing. He's going to get everything for nothing. But he never does. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's a terrible hard way. It's a taskmaster. It's the bondage of Egypt. Listen to another. Here are the children of Israel about to cross Jordan and to enter into the promised land. Then certain of these nations came, you remember, and made a request. They said, can we stay on this side? We don't want to go over Jordan. We prefer to stay here. They'd rather admire the land there. It was good pasture land. And they were interested in cattle. They said, let us stay here. We promise you we won't cut ourselves off and we'll come over and worship with you and we'll bring our offerings. Very well, said Moses to them. Listen to his words. He said, all right, I'll accept it. I'll believe you. I will believe you and I'll accept your contract. I'll sign it. I'll sign the agreement. But he said, look here. If you don't do what you've now said, remember, be sure your sin will find you out. You notice? He doesn't say other people will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. It will come back on you. Oh, don't think you can play, said Moses. I'm only a man, but I'm the representative of God. I'll accept your agreement. You break it, your sin will find you out. Do what you will. And you know the whole of life testifies to that. As I've already reminded you, that's the testimony of history, the biographies, the novels, the tragedies. It's the testimony of the world tonight. That sin carries its own punishment with it. What is it? Well, here are the words again. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter, bitter. Sin is always bitter. Not only is it a bitterness towards God, it's a bitter thing in and of itself. That stolen fruit that looks so attractive, it's always bitter. I've never tasted a sweet sin yet. I thought it was going to be, but it's always bitter. Oh, the difference between obeying God's law and trying to improve upon them in this artificial manner. You think it's going to be better, but it never is. Never. There's always a bitterness at the heart of the thing. 
And the moment you've done it, you feel the bitterness at once. There's always a reaction. There's a terrible story in the Old Testament. I was hesitating for a moment as to whether I should say it from this pulpit because it's a little bit indelicate. But I needn't hesitate, need I, today with the Lady Chatterley mentality? Very well, here's the story. One of the sons of King David called Ammon took a fancy to a half-sister of his. And he was moved by lust. And a man moved by lust is not decent. He couldn't wait and do things properly and marry the girl as he would have been given permission to do. We are told that he forced her. He was madly in love with her so much so that he became ill. And then, you remember the ruse, the, the contrivance. A friend of his said, now you get her to go and bake some cakes for you and ask her, David, your father, if she can come and bring them to you. And all this was done. And he was madly in love with her. But his lust got the better of him and he forced her. And you remember what we are told? The moment he did it, he hated her. The moment he did it, he hated her. That's the bitterness of sin. You break the rules and you'll soon experience the bitterness. Life is offering its attractions. Young people come to London and think now it's going to be marvelous. Look at it all. My dear friend, listen to this word of God. Why don't you see? Why don't you know that sin always leads to bitterness? Invariably. Look at that poor prodigal son. He thought he was very clever when he left home, didn't he? Pockets full of money. Plenty of friends. Everything all right. But oh, the bitterness of that foreign land and the field and the swine and the husks. The bitterness of it all. He says, my father's paid servants are having a better time than I'm having. What can you call such a man but a fool? Didn't appreciate what he was having, what he'd got. Must go and do things for himself. He knew better than his father. It always leads to bitterness. Oh, says the Apostle Paul again in writing to the Romans. What profit had he then in those things of which he are now ashamed? None at all. There's never any profit in sin. You see, because the thing is so wrong. It's evil, it's wicked, it's bitter, it's ugly, it's foul. It can't lead to any profit and it never has done. Nobody's ever profited out of sin. It's always a dead loss. And not only that, it's not only bitter, but it always carries, as I say, its own punishment with it. Sometimes it's physical. Look at that poor fellow who drank too much last night. How ill he felt this morning with his poor head and his soured stomach, suffering even physically. Sin always does it in some shape or form. That sin, it carries its own consequences. He didn't think that last night, did he, with his boon companions? Of course he didn't. This was being a man. This was having a good time. Good time. You talk to him about the good time the morning after. Oh, the suffering is often physical. There are many ruined bodies because of sin. There are many little children born not perfect and complete because of sin. Sin is a robber. It always carries a punishment with it. But the, the suffering, the consequences are not only physical. They're also spiritual. What are they? Shame. A sense of shame. Remorse. Kicking yourself, bitter regret, feeling you were a fool if only you could go back and undo it, but you can't. Realization of the folly. Not only that, the haunting memory of what you once did, the difficulty of forgetting it. Oh, there are some people terribly wretched tonight, and it's all because of something they did many years ago. They thought they'd finished with it, but they hadn't. Like David, you see, when he took Bathsheba and committed adultery with her and then murdered her husband, he was very pleased. But God wasn't, and David wasn't very soon. When he sent Nathan to him, look at the man in his misery and shame, and the child dies, and he feels he's lost everything. Oh, it inevitably happens. Sin always carries its own punishment. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. It's an absolute law. God has made it a law. Loss of character, loss of purity, loss of chastity, loss of honesty. And the moral punishment that comes, 
Did any man ever set out in life to be a drunkard? Of course not. There's never been such a man. The man was just setting out to do what everybody else was doing. He thought it was the way to be a man. No man ever deliberately set out with the intention of becoming a drunkard and a slave to sin. What's happened then? Oh, it's a part of the punishment of sin, you see. You play with sin, you'll soon begin to know the punishment. You won't be able to stop. It'll have you in your grip. How many are there in this congregation fighting besetting sins and failing? They get you down. You're in the grip of them. Why? Well, because sin is evil. Sin is wickedness. Sin is bitter. And God has decreed that its punishment is in it. You cannot violate the law of your life and being that as God has made it and made you. You cannot forsake the Lord your God. You cannot cease to have the fear of God in your mind and heart. Without becoming the slave of sin and of the world, the flesh and the devil. Sin never leads to happiness. It never has, it never will. It never gives what it promises. Life apart from God is an inevitable failure and inevitably leads to unhappiness. The world tonight is oh how unhappy. I know. On with the motley, the paint and the powder. We keep it up, don't we? The show goes on, but a breaking heart is underneath it all. On with the motley, the paint and the powder. How happy they seem to be, but are they? Oh, it comes back on you, you know. If you sinned twenty years ago and caused another woman to be very unhappy because of your sin, well, it may take twenty years before it comes back to you, but it'll come. And it does come, doesn't it? Read your newspapers. Twenty years later sometimes, it comes back. Be sure your sins will find you out. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. The mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceeding small. Don't argue with this, my friend. Why don't you know this? Why don't you recognize this? Why don't you see it? This is the law of life. Stated here. Proved by the whole course of human history. Why don't you see it? Why don't you believe it? What is our conclusion therefore? It is this. Know and see this. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God. And that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. Come. Don't you see it? Have I not convinced you? Haven't you got to know it now if you'd never known it before? Can't you see that it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, as the Lord of glory said to Saul of Tarsus, and that's what you are doing? You do what you like. Talk about your modern knowledge and your science. Say you don't believe this sort of rubbish. All right, you go and do it, but I'm only going to tell you this. You'll be miserable. You'll be wretched. You'll never find the peace and the happiness and the joy that you're looking for. Never. It can't be done. And, you know, the past will come up and, and haunt you and mock you and taunt and jeer at you. And you've still got to die, you see. And it'll all come back then. And there you'll be facing it when it's too late. I don't want to talk about the future tonight. I'm keeping it only to this world as it is in my text this evening. All this comes to us in this world. My dear friend, can't you see it? Don't you know this? Don't you feel you must give in? Don't you really now grasp the thing? Isn't it obvious, inevitable, inexorable? Very well. Know and see this. And you can give proof of the fact that you have come to know it, that you understand it, and that you really do see it. And the proof is this. That without any delay at all, you turn to God and acknowledge to him that you haven't lived under his fear, that you haven't thought about him, and that your views of yourself were your own views and that of your contemporaries, and that you hadn't believed his word, that you'd flouted it all and spurned it. Go back to him. Fall down before him. Tell him I'm a fool. A blind fool at that. A lunatic. In spite of all the evidence. Secular evidence and above all the evidence of your word. The evidence provided by your old ancient people whom you set up as a great pattern and example in all this. 
go back to him and tell him, Oh God, I see what a fool I've been. And that I'm bound to reap these consequences and that I can't evade them. I see it all. My one concern now, tell him, is this. Can you possibly look upon me? Can you possibly receive me? Can you even listen to one who's been so vile, so evil, so wicked, so utterly foolish and bitter? Oh, God, go back and ask him that. Ask him, can he, will he look at you? That's repentance. That's acknowledgement of your sin to God. That's casting yourself entirely at his mercy and at his feet. Go and do that. Repent. And you know what you'll discover. Well, I'll tell you. You will find that God will look upon you and smile upon you. Indeed, his own son, our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, pictured him in the parable of the prodigal son as one who's waiting for you. And you know, you'll find him as it were running to meet you. He'll come to you instead of your going to him, and he'll enfold you with his arms. He'll smile upon you, and he'll say to you, my dear child, I've been watching you, I've seen your folly, you've been the dupe and the slave of the devil. He has blinded you and bludgeoned your understanding. Of course, I take you back. I so loved you that I sent mine only son, mine only begotten son into the world, to bear your sins and to die your death. I've punished your sins in him. I pardon you freely. Do you believe me? Do you believe that I'll blot out your sins as a thick cloud? Do you believe me when I tell you that I'll not only pardon you and forgive you, I'll give you a new life, I'll give you a new nature, I'll make you a new being, I'll give you a new start. As that father took back the prodigal, I'll take you back. I'll put a new robe on you. I'll put the robe of my own son on you. It's a dazzling white robe of righteousness. We'll have a feast. They'll be rejoicing in heaven in my home concerning you. And I'll shower my blessings upon you. I'll lead you through the remainder of your life in this world. And at the end of it, I'll receive you unto myself and you shall be allowed to share my own glory throughout eternity. That's all you have to do. No! See the thing. And having seen it, repent. Believe God's word in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be saved. Start a new life. And go on living in a new way. No longer bitter. No longer evil. No longer wicked. No longer sorrow, wretchedness, disappointment. But life. And life more abundant. Life. Which is life. Indeed. Amen.